From the moon to Mars, you're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's Artemis 1 mission has made it to the moon. The milestone mission launched last week from Kennedy Space Center, ushering in a new chapter of lunar exploration. We'll hear about that historic launch and what's ahead for Artemis now that it's reached the moon. Then, a robot exploring Mars was only expected to last 90 days. Instead, it made it 15 years. A new documentary is chronicling the incredible journey of NASA's Opportunity rover. We'll explore the new film, Good Night Oppie, and chat with one of the rover's scientists. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. NASA's Orion space capsule has reached the moon after launching last week from Kennedy Space Center in Florida. The uncrewed capsule whipped around the backside of the moon at close to 80 miles from the surface, completing a critical milestone in NASA's Artemis 1 mission. It's the first time a capsule designed to take humans has visited the moon in 50 years. The mission is testing critical components of the spacecraft before allowing astronauts to fly aboard on its next mission. Here to talk more about that historic launch and what's ahead for Orion is Chris Gebhardt. He's the assistant managing editor at nasaspaceflight.com. Chris, welcome back to the show. My pleasure. It was certainly a historic moment, and what a day on Wednesday morning, right? <laughs> it was. It launched. It actually I launched. <laughs> I think we all felt the same thing when the solids ignited. We were all like, yes, it did it! <laughs> so you and I were both out there at the Kennedy Space Center last week. Um, people ask me, like, what was it like? And um, it's almost indescribable to me, which is a terrible word for me to use as a, as a reporter. But um, it really is. But I mean, for you, can you try to describe it? <laughs> I'm going to put this on you. What was it like? I will do my absolute best. So I must preface this by saying that I have been waiting for this moment for over 11 years. Uh, I was a reporter who covered the final flights of the shuttle program. And I I literally remember the day Atlantis landed and there was nothing to follow that program. There was no commercial crew program. There was no SLS. And then about a month and a half later is when the SLS program got its, um, got its full approval in Congress. No, in no small thanks to now administrator Nelson, who was then a Senator and to to literally follow that rocket's development, even tracing its lineage all the way back to the Constellation program in January of 2004 it, with the Bush administration. I, I mean, th- this was anywhere from 11 to 18 years in the making for, for several, several people, especially the folks on the Orion program. And so, so first of all, I think at Solid Rocket Ignition, what I felt was just a massive cathartic release for all of the people who had been waiting for this moment, finally seeing all their hard work and dedication pay off. And I mean, and what a payoff it was, because the launch was incredibly successful. And we'll, I know we'll get to that, but, but, but the feeling of it, you know, so many people, I think, in Central Florida had moved here after the end of the shuttle program. They never got to experience what that was like. And the, we got used to the Falcon 9s, which are babies compared to what SLS just did. And but but the best way that I can describe it is is truly it's 
overwhelming in a few different ways. The it's so bright and and the solid rockets are so intense that literally with your own eyes the sky around it starts to turn blue. And you can very 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 clearly see everyone around you across, you know, like a, a half a mile or more uh, along the space center. I mean it it really does turn turn night into day. And as if that isn't disorienting enough for your for your brain, then the sound hits. And and I think the decibels that I that I saw peaked around 112, 119 or something like that for for SLS. And I, I mean it you you're just your senses are just being inundated and overwhelmed as as the system is is firing to push it all uphill and into orbit. But at the same moment, you're just standing there with the biggest smile on your face, and everyone around you is is screaming and hollering in in just this passionate, passionate release of emotion because it finally did it. It finally worked, and, and Artemis was on its way to the moon. Seeing, I I had never covered a space shuttle mission that close. You know, I had always seen them, you know, from many, many, many miles away. Um, and seeing those solid rocket boosters light, and as you described it, like night turned into day. It was absolutely incredible to see that. And I think one of the things for me that that made it even more incredible is I was standing out there watching it, and a few other space reporters who are prolific live tweeters uh, who are always tweeting what's happening during countdown were standing next to me and they were just looking straight up. There was no phones. There was nothing. Everybody was just taking in that moment. It was, it was incredible. It was incredible. Um, But it almost wasn't there. I mean, talk me through the one issue that, that um, prompted the red team to head out there. Cause I'm pretty sure this was an issue that, that you had asked NASA about in a, in a press conference, right? (laughs) It was, it was, it, it became a question that I had actually asked them about, although I was actually thinking of a totally different system when okay. I asked that question. <laughs> Take um, the credit, Chris G. <laughs> but, but uh, yes, we, we, we could make the joke that there wouldn't be an SLS launch without a hydrogen leak of some kind. Um, so yeah, th- so this one was actually on the mobile launcher itself. And this was a valve that they use. So, so basically as, as the core stage is filled with liquid hydrogen, it's a cryogenic fluid that's about negative 420 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's its boiling point. So when it reaches that, it starts to boil off inside the tank. And there's a and you can do mathematical calculations that know, okay, this is how much is boiling off. So this is how much I need to keep pushing in the bottom through the main fueling systems that had had all the leaks through the wet dress rehearsals and the, and the prior launch campaigns. But then up at the top of the hydrogen tank, there's a vent valve. And as you keep replenishing the tank to keep it at 100%, you have to vent the hydrogen that is coming out of that. And they had a little leak at one of the valves that regulates that um, that, that pressure and regulates that replenishment cycle on the mobile launch tower. And, and I want to stress that because SLS only gave one issue throughout all of this. And it was so minor with a sensor to one engine uh, that the vehicle was remarkably clean and remarkably good from an engineering standpoint. And this little valve was leaking. It was leaking above the 1% concentration rate that they needed. And it was either scrub it and stop for the day and wait until the 19th to fully drain the tanks and, and then get folks out there. Or 
you have the contingency to send a very, very small crew called the red team, a contingency team out there to fix it. And every company has this. ULA has had to send red team members out to the pad with a fully fueled Atlas vehicle. Northrop Grumman has had to do that for Antares. Um, we had to do that during the space shuttle program. They were actually called the ice team. Um, and, and then the red team as, as well during the shuttle era. And we had to do this. And so it's a procedure that's in place and man oh man were those three people the 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 heroes of the day <laughs> <For sure. laughs> on that one because they they went out to a fully fueled rocket and 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 changed out that valve and it worked and they are the reason that we were able to lift off on wednesday morning the launch was beautiful um very minimal issues on launch day now the mission is in full swing um what's happening now what what is ahead for orion yeah, so it's actually cool because as we record this, Orion is actually entering the lunar sphere of influence where the moon's gravity starts to act on it more than Earth's. And that's amazing because it's been 50 years since a human-rated spacecraft has done that uh, with Apollo 17. So that's an, an immense uh, accomplishment just in and of itself. But what's coming up over, over the 26-day-long mission is, uh, so Orion has already been checking out its propulsion systems, doing some firings of, of its various thrusters and engines to make sure that all of those propulsion systems are working. They've been monitoring the solar arrays to make sure that they are generating the power that they are supposed to. They are. And they're also providing us those epic GoPro camera views that provide the, gorgeous, the selfies yeah, for Orion yeah, and, and, yeah. and Earth and everything. So... Um, uh, they are also monitoring the radiation environment inside the Orion capsule to make sure that it's that it would be able to protect crews the way it is designed to do. And they're also starting to do some of the experiments inside Orion, like a really cool experiment called Callisto, which uses Alexa and iPad and WebEx video conferencing <laughs> software, basically what we're doing right now, mm -hmm, Brendan, yeah. recording this, <laughs> and trying to link that with Alexa so that those creature comforts that you have at home Alexa, turn on the lights. Alexa, do this. And apologies to anyone whose lights just turned off or on because <laughs> I said that. Uh, but uh, but but they're but they're trying to test things like that um, and and virtual presence devices to help us understand that communication lag that astronauts are going to face. And let's face it: in 1972, when Apollo 17 did the last lunar landing, there was no internet. We were not tethered to our phones and tethered to technology and information at our fingertips. And now we are. And it's very disconcerting to remove yourself from that. So this is part of what they're trying to test on this mission is how do those little creature comforts and the things we're used to, how can we take those with us to the moon? But Alexa has to have an internet connection back to Earth. So how does that work when you're a quarter of a million miles from Earth? So they're testing that. And then they're really going to do a big burn to throw Orion into its distant retrograde orbit. And they're basically going to do half an orbit around the moon. And basically distant retrograde orbit just means it swings out really far from the moon when it's in orbit and it's going retrograde. It's going against the moon's rotation. Um, and that's all it means. And it's going to be a, a pretty good test flight, half lap around the moon. And then they'll actually do the deorbit burn at the moon to bring uh, Orion back. And that will be the last major burn of the service module. Uh, and then the big, big, big test for this mission is proving that the redesigned heat shield works on Orion at lunar velocity return. So that's the big picture of what's going to go on uh, on this 26-day mission. Mm -hmm. And finally, Chris Gephardt, um, assuming all goes well with that reentry, uh, what's next? What are some what are some other major milestones the Artemis program needs to hit before we can 
see those astronauts step foot on the moon. Yeah, so the actual next step is not going to be with the SLS rocket or the Orion spacecraft once Orion is back. The next big moment that we turn to for the Artemis program is in South Texas at Boca Chica to SpaceX for the orbital test flight of the Starship system. Starship is the lunar lander for the Artemis 3 mission, which will return humanity to the surface of the moon. And SpaceX, actually the day before Artemis 1 lifted off from the Kennedy Space Center, SpaceX won the landing contract for Artemis 4 the second uh, lunar lander. Uh, so we really, really, really need Starship to do its orbital demonstration. We need either that to be a successor for SpaceX to recover very quickly from, uh, from a particular failure on that flight, which is, which is an option, just like it was for SLS. Um, uh, Starship is a brand new rocket, so it's a possibility. And then the Starship flights, the Starship um, test flights for the Artemis 3 mission need to begin. They are contracted to demonstrate in-orbit uh, in refueling of the Starship system, which is crucial for the lunar lander. And they are committed to flying an uncrewed demonstration flight for the lunar landing program, very similar to Demo 1, the uncrewed flight of, of the Dragon capsule to the station in March of 2019. So there's a lot from SpaceX that we are still waiting for for the Artemis program. And then from the uh, from the SLS and Orion perspective, uh, Orion and the European Service Module for Artemis II are here at the Kennedy Space Center. They're undergoing outfitting and testing. And then the solid rocket booster segments are done in Utah, and they're just waiting for NASA to say, okay, we want them here at Kennedy. And then the core stage is scheduled to be completed in spring of 2023 and be ready for shipment sometime thereafter to Kennedy. So... The components for Artemis II are coming together, and uh, if, if this test flight goes well, NASA could very well be on track to pull that next flight off 18 to 24 months after Artemis One. We was being with Chris Gephardt. He's the Assistant Managing Editor at NASASpaceFlight.com. Chris, thanks again for joining us. My absolute pleasure, Brendan. Still to come, a new documentary chronicles the incredible Martian journey of NASA's Opportunity rover. A conversation with the film's director and one of the mission's scientists about Oppie's decade and a half on the Red Planet. That's just ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's Opportunity rover landed on Mars and was expected to only last 90 days on the surface. It defied those expectations and lasted 15 years exploring the Red Planet and laying the groundwork for future rovers to follow in its tracks. Opportunity's story is chronicled in a new documentary from Amazon Studios. Goodnight Oppie premieres on Amazon Prime Wednesday. Here to talk more about the film and the mission is Goodnight Oppie director Ryan White and also NASA JPL's Doug Ellison, who was a camera operator on the mission and is now the Curiosity Rover's planning team chief. Ryan, Doug, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Absolute pleasure. So Ryan, I'm going to start with you. Um, I always like to ask film directors when when they come on the show, how did you come across this, this story? When did you first encounter the story of opportunity? Well, I was a huge space geek my entire life, and so I I've always followed um, NASA's missions. Um, and so I was following Opportunity and Spirit's missions from afar, um, but I didn't have the idea to make a film about it until March of 2020. I had a dinner with Film 45, which is Pete Berg's company, and 
uh, Amblin Entertainment, which is Spielberg's company, and they pitched the idea to me. I'd worked with them in the past on a Serena Williams documentary, very different, um, but they thought I might be a good fit. And because I had this lifelong childhood dream of becoming an astronaut that never panned out for me, I thought this was the way to uh, vicariously perhaps uh, relive that childhood dream in making this film. And so I signed on to do it, not knowing um, that the day after that dinner that we would get an email telling us we can't leave our houses anymore. So it was um, the next couple of years of making this film um, during during COVID. And it was because the film is so heartwarming and joyful, it was a real um, lifesaver during that time period. Doug, the movie obviously is is about the the end of of opportunity, but it also recounts just this incredible mission. Um, tell us a little bit about this mission. Um, remind us, this was only supposed to be what three months long, and and it's accomplished so much. Give us a history of of opportunity. Yeah, the 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 warranty underneath the rover. If you if you check the label, it said ninety days, um, and. A lot of people like to question whether that really was how long we thought they'd last. And you can look up the papers that say, you know, with some fairly conservative modeling that Spirit should have lasted about 93 days and Opportunity should have lasted about 100. Um, they were born out of the, the fires of, of some pretty horrific failures in the late 90s for the NASA's Mars program and um, were kind of the science community and the engineering community saying, what have we got that's good? What have we got that works? And what came together... Uh, very fortuitously was the this incredible design for these two robots that for the first time were going to not be dependent on the lander but cut the cord and go roving and that's that's exactly what they did um both were designed to head out to look for evidence that mars once had water in its ancient geological past and i think it's fair to say that both rovers definitely checked that box with a with a giant check mark ryan you said it's a heartwarming story and a lot of folks here on Earth have fallen in love with with this little robot over the years. I mean, what makes this rover so human? Is it is it the people behind it? Is it the fact that it's got its own personality? Like, how do how does the audience connect to this machine that is on a different planet? I think it's multifaceted, but I do think uh, part of it at least has to do with the design of the robot, which was an accident. I think this robot could have looked like many things, but the fact that it looks like uh, Johnny Five and what Wally ended up looking like a few years later, I don't think is really by accident. And, you know, we detail in our film on what those human characteristics are that were given um, to the robot. Um, in many parts, because humans themselves uh, can't go to Mars yet. And so they designed this robot to be their stand-in um, and to have human capabilities. But uh, to your other point, I think for sure what makes these ro robots feel so um, personified are the, are the human beings behind them. They, they, they are the ones that uh, birth this robot. They are the ones that drive them every day. They're the ones seeing through these robots' eyes. Doug, I know, I know you work on or you worked on the imagery from Opportunity. I mean, tell us what this rover saw what kind of images did it see and, and how did this change the way that scientists viewed mars as a planet so the opportunity landing site I, I think i think one of the scientists jokingly said when the first images came down you know this isn't your mother's mars this was kind of dark grayish blue sandy flats um pocketed with different size craters and 
Um, it's the story of going from a small crater to a slightly bigger crater to an even bigger one to a gigantic crater over the, the 15 years. That really is the, is the same story of increasing scientific return as, as the longevity of the rovers kind of really bore out scientific value. Um, very early on, it was very clear that the, the bedrock right in front of the rover was laid down in the presence of water, but probably not uh, nice water, probably something more like battery acid. Um, and so whilst perhaps life could have clung on there, it's unlikely to have been a place that life might have emerged in the first place. And then the story unfolds as let's go somewhere where we can see more outcrop. Can we see even further back in the Martian geological records to understand what happened earlier? And the longevity of the rover meant that we made it all the way to this extraordinarily large crater. The rocks changed when we got to that new giant crater, and they didn't just speak to a wet history of geology at Mars. They spoke to neutral pH water. The clay minerals that we found there could only have formed in the presence of water you might well have been able to drink. And so that that really did confirm long enough ago was enough Earth-like that you can very easily imagine life having emerged. Ryan, as a documentary filmmaker, you've profiled you know other other people, um, but profiling a robot seems like it would be a very difficult task as as a filmmaker, uh, and especially one that is on a different planet. <laughs> how did you go about telling the story of opportunity? How how do you you know grab images and you know get its history and really dig into what makes this thing who it is? There were a few components um, visually and narrative wise that we used to build the film that we were really lucky to have. First, we had almost a thousand hours of archival from NASA of Opportunity's entire life. And so we could start at the beginning, which is the, which is the type of storytelling I like to do. I wouldn't have made this film if it was just a look back at Opportunity's life. That's not my interest as a filmmaker, and there'd be far better filmmakers to make that type of film. Um, but we had that archival, and then the vision from the very beginning um, at that first dinner was Am- with Amblin was, can we take the audience to Mars in a way that's never been done um, in film or television? And using all of the photography that Doug is referring to, you know, each, each of these rovers I had nine cameras, and there's orbiters above Mars that take so many photographs down on the terrain. And so they know what it looks like and they have all of the data to back that up. It's just, you know, I don't, I don't, didn't think that would make the most compelling of documentaries if we were just looking at, at, at you know, low res photos for most of it. So we went to Industrial Light and Magic, the best in the business at visual effects and said, if we give you these hundreds of thousands of photos and all of this data that NASA has from every day of their journey, can you make it not look like a cartoon? Can you bring Mars to life in a photo real way that would make the audience feel like they are with these robots on their on their day-to-day journeys? And they said, we've never done it before, um, but we are capable. And so they built Mars from the ground up. Um, and then we also had one other incredible component, which is called the Analyst Notebook, which is uh, basically the, the diaries, the daily diaries that they wrote for the rovers, which were written in present tense. So they they kept all of the drama and suspense of whenever one of the rovers was in, you know, some sort of crisis or in some sort of huge discovery moment. Doug, are, are other spacecraft doing that that same thing? Are there are there these journals chronicling what's happening on, on these different planets and these different missions? It, absolutely. For, for all of our Mars rovers, the, the importance of documenting in the moment as, as thoroughly and, and 
openly as we can is really important because that is the, the when these missions die when they're finally over that is the heritage we leave behind for scientists and engineers who want to learn about how these missions worked what they discovered you know what troubles they overcame and, and how they overcame them and so um I, i'll be honest i'm i'm actually consciously thinking having seen how much that meant to ryan and the team when making this movie i'm looking at the curiosity mission now and thinking is there something more we should be doing to document in the moment like is there anything else that we could leave as we're going through the planning process day to day as as a record of what we did and how we did it doug i know opportunity laid the groundwork for a lot of the future mars rovers to come come after it also i've spoken to a lot of folks that are on the current mars rover missions and a lot of them got their starts working on opportunity can you talk a bit about just kind of how scientists like yourself, the chance to explore a different planet and, and kind of propel their careers to the newer rovers that are on, on the surface? It's a recurring theme that when a new mission kind of comes to fruition, uh, once it's landed, once it's doing its thing, um, the, the early operations are done by the very same people who designed it and built it because they know it the best. But over time, you get this, this transition, this evolution into just an operations team who weren't around when the mission was being formulated and, and developed. And so those of us who are left on the on the deck of the good ship opportunity as you went down were not the same people who built that rover 15, 16, 17 years before. And these missions become a training ground for the next generation of operational engineers. And so myself, Ashley, who was in the movie, Abby, who was in the movie, we're all working on Curiosity now. Um, others went on to work, Becca works on the Mars 2020 rover Perseverance. Um, they act as a training ground for the next generation. And finally, Ryan, what do you hope audiences will, will take away from this movie? What What's the message you hope we all get? Well, I don't spend a ton of time thinking about messages when I'm making a film. Like my, my, my biggest goal always, even in verite documentary filmmaking, is always just to take the audience on some sort of emotionally transformative journey. Um, and that can mean, that can mean a lot of things, but with this one, we were very conscious much more than I ever am in my films of the audience and creating an experience for the audience. And that was especially being cognizant, which is so rare for documentary filmmakers that you are making a documentary that could be appropriate for all ages. Um, but we were very aware we had that opportunity with this film. And so we really hope, you know, we only have 11 human being characters in the film. There's a lot of, there's hundreds of people in the archival, but we, we could only interview 11 um, and still fit it into a feature film. And there are thousands of people that worked or touched these robots in some way. And so we can never do that full team justice. And I think there are many other iterations of this film with 11 other people or 11 other people that could also be just as great of films. But we were very conscious in choosing human beings where young audience members, no matter where they are in the world, because these aren't just Americans, as you can hear from, from Doug's accent, um, no matter where they are in the world, might see someone on screen and say, like, why Why isn't that job for me? Ryan Doug, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. That was Goodnight Oppie director Ryan White and NASA JPL's Doug Ellison, who served as a camera operator on the Opportunity mission and who is now Curiosity Rover's planning team chief. Goodnight Oppie premieres on Amazon Prime Wednesday. 
Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Subscribe on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org slash space. Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Our producer is Beatrice Oliveira. Editorial guidance this week from Joe Mario Pedersen. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.